Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihera Zazan. This week we bring you the second part of an in-depth conversation about the root causes of the protests in Iraq with Belsam Mustafa, a researcher in modern languages and politics at the University of Birmingham. Also this week we remember the great Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, who passed away on August 9th, 2008, following complications after a major heart surgery in Houston, Texas. He was 67. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Last month, oppressive summer heat Lack of water and electricity and pent-up anger against government corruption sparked mass protests in southern oil-rich city of Basra in Iraq. It quickly spread across the south of the country and into Baghdad. Vomina producer Shahram Agamir spoke with Belsam Mustafa about the protests in Iraq. Here is the second part of the interview with Belsam Mustafa, who is a PhD researcher in modern languages and politics at the University of Birmingham. The record low turnout of only 44% of eligible voters casting their ballots in Iraq's parliamentary elections in May was also understood at the time by many Iraq observers as a sign Mm -hmm. of disaffection with the current political structure. It seems Mm -hmm. like these protesters as we are watching the ongoing protests in Iraq today, these protesters are also disillusioned with the formal politics and the political parties jockeying for power. Hence, they have opted for another form of struggle, that is street politics, collective mm-hmm. action in lieu of the ballot box. Is that a fair assessment of the situation? We can confidently say that there is this enchantment with the ballot box, which is sort of nationwide and it's not limited to one geographic area. Yeah, of course. People try to send a message, not just to the government, not just to the political parties, but to the whole world, saying that, look, we are not participating in the election. We are not going to vote because we lost faith in those political parties. And not just like, not just uh, this, because, uh, you know, you have the election law itself. People now are aware that this law has been basically designed just to reproduce and recycle the same old faces. So even if they go and try to vote, and although there is no uh, alternative because uh, largely they are the same uh, political parties, but even if they manage to find, let us say, a smaller, more independent party, it won't win. It won't get uh, an opportunity because of the the election law and then the uh, post-election alliances, again, based on the quota system. It's not just a loss in the faith, but also sending a message that, look, this has to change. The election law has to change so that we can fairly participate and vote for the people that we think represent us. The second message came just two months later when people took this to the streets. Because as I said, although the incentive of the protest was the basic demands, but if you listen to the chants, to the slogans, you could feel that it's much beyond than that. It's against uh, not just the corruption, it's against all the political parties. And some of people raised this issue, really. They raised the issue of the elections law, raised the issue of the constitutions. But the problem is, I think, that people still lack political awareness because when you hear someone saying we need the parliamentary uh, system to be replaced with a presidential one, you can see that uh, they still don't have uh, this level of political uh, consciousness because a presidential system won't solve uh, Iraq's problem. The problem is about the the, the political parties, the political blocs based on two um, pillars of leadership, and also money. And, and a system that was established in the aftermath of the U.S.-led invasion exactly. of Iraq exactly. and fortified by the Iranian regime's intervention in Iraq by buttressing these political groups. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you could uh, feel this. That, again, uh, this was reflected in the uh, chants and the slogans of the protesters, because 
basically they don't want interference from any other country. Uh, It's not just about Iran, but especially from Iran, because they feel that their intervention, their interference in Iraq was not for the sake of building a strong Iraqi state but for uh, powering themselves, powering through uh, backing uh, the parties, backing their armed groups, the militias, and contributing to the chaos and instability in Iraq. That kind of explains why protesters were chanting anti-Iranian slogans. And these chants are taking place in areas where the population is predominantly Shia. This is Mm -hmm. also where the dominant political parties, except for the Sadris, are considered to be close allies of the Iranian regime, as you mentioned. And the trigger for this protest was the fact that Iran cut off its electricity to Iraq in the middle of the summer, leading Iraq to lose about 1,400 megawatts of power. But surely, because of what you said, this could not have caused such a backlash or anger against the Iranian regime, but it it had to do with the fact that it's a sort of a deeper question of uh, Iran's role in Iraq. Yeah, it's much deeper. Definitely agree with you. And I think that the issue of uh, Iran cutting off the power supply is irrelevant to people's uh, anger because uh, people are angry against uh, the political leaders because they think they are responsible in the first place for allowing Iran to interfere and uh, against the negative role Iran has played in Iraq so far. They feel that Iraq is now the backyards for Iran. And and I think you could not say that 15 years ago in the aftermath of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, that those sentiments probably were not so strong at the time, against Iran, that is. Yes, you could say that uh, this uh, was uh, controversial, debated, uh, now, uh, there is almost an agreement, I wouldn't say by all people, of course but I would not. say by the majority of Iraqis. It's against the uh, idea of interference because they want to see their country as independent, which has respected, I mean, relationships with all its neighbors, relationships that uh, serve the interests of the country rather than uh, those of the, the political elites or the armed groups. But this never happened Iran was uh, one of the key countries that has been meddling in Iraq in a very negative way. Of course, if you bring up this subject in a conversation with the Iranian regime officials, they would say, wait a minute, we are the ones who actually help Iraq get rid of a major threat that was Daesh, ISIS in the north. That's what they would argue. They would say, well, look, this is our contribution to the Iraq and its future. <laughs> they can say whatever they want, but uh, Iraqis, they, they wouldn't believe and they wouldn't be convinced anymore. The ones who saved Iraq are Iraqi volunteers, uh, Iraqis who, I mean, went and, and fought ISIS. You know, and also there was the coalitions, uh, the security forces who were backed by the coalition. But I would say mainly the volunteers and those, this is the paradox because those uh, southern cities have contributed large numbers of its young people to the fight against ISIS. If you go to them, even in Baghdad, you would see that the streets are um, covered with the images, the pictures of martyrs who gave their lives in the fight against ISIS. And there was um, an outrage in the electoral campaigns just before May elections because when politicians try to remove those pictures and replace them with uh, their posters and uh, banners. And they should not forget about the role clearly played by Kurdish Peshmergas in fighting the ISIS and pushing them out. Another counter-argument, mm-hmm. of course, to the Iranian argument would be would there have been any ISIS and formation of Daesh in Iraq had it not been for the sectarian policies and the policies implemented by the government itself that helped the genesis of such forces in Iraq? I would say there are um, multiple factors at many levels, but this is, of course, one major factor that led to the rise of uh, ISIS in Mm. Iraq. So since we are talking about Iran, what is your understanding of why Iran cut off its uh, supply of electricity to Iraq? Saudi Arabia seems to have made an offer to Iraq, which involves Mm -hmm. the construction of a solar farm to sell electricity Mm -hmm. to Iraq at a price Mm -hmm. which is a quarter of what Iraq pays for electricity supplies from Iran. What is behind Iran's cutting of supply of electricity to Iraq, as well as what is in Saudi's mind? 
to start with the Iranian cutoff of power, there are two narratives. So one by Iraqi officials saying that the cut was because uh, Iraq did not pay its uh, bills or debts to Iran. But then there were statements by Iranian officials saying uh, we had to cut off because we are going through a local um, and domestic conditions because of uh, we have high demands and pressure inside Iran and we could not supply power to Iraq anymore. In terms of Saudi effort, I can't tell what what in there in the the minds of uh, Saudi, but I I would say that. For the sake of investments, if it does not carry any other political intention or uh, comes with any other, you know, something that we don't know, something that's behind the scenes that uh, would work against the interest of Iraq or, uh, of course, uh, this is something that no one would accept. But if it's something that would help Iraq, if, it's, uh, if we take it as good intention, as investments, Uh, Why not? But again, it won't solve Iraq's main problem. It might be helpful for a short term, but not for a long term. The main issue is the political system in Iraq itself. Well, Saudis clearly are going against Iranian hegemonic influence in Iraq. It could be, yeah. Yeah. It is uh, one of the possible scenarios, I mean. You know, Balsam, I should have mentioned when we were talking about the formation of ISIS, one of the main reasons ISIS was born as such, had to do with uh, U.S. occupation of Iraq and removal of Saddam Hussein at the time and aftermath of the occupation in terms of the constitution that was formed, the political structure that was formed, and so forth and so on. But, but at the time, we were just talking about the Iranian role, of course. We did talk about some of these political parties and their role or lack thereof in this protest. Uh, let's talk about the role played by the Shia religious leadership in Najaf and Grand Ayatollah mm-hmm. Sistani. It took two weeks of protests before mm-hmm. these ayatollahs, if you like, and the, the Marjaya, Shiite leadership, characterized the protesters' demands as legitimate. What do you make of the stance taken by these clerics? Does this religious leadership still enjoy strong support among the protesters and perhaps in the area in general? People reacted in a very unexpected way when the Marja'iyya did not mention the protests a couple of weeks ago in the Friday uh, prayer uh, speech. And there was criticism in the streets and on social media uh, against the Marja'iyya, which is something I, I think it was unprecedented because you know how highly revered the Marja'iyya is for Shia. To, to see that people are starting to criticize, you could feel that the Marja'iyya is beginning to gradually uh, losing force. You could say when, when you hear people criticizing it, and because of this pressure, because of this criticism, the Marja'iyya responded by bringing up the protests and the protesters and uh, referring to to their demands as legitimate and standing you know saying that we stand with the with the protesters and their demands but again their reference to Iraq's need for a really strong a very strong and brave man to take lead it again shows that the marja'iya is not uh, quite aware of Iraq's uh, problems because this is, isn't about one leader who could solve uh, Iraq problems. It's about uh, a whole uh, system. And we, as I mentioned, we will always go back. You can see that this is really a circle because uh, the main issue in Iraq is the, the election system, the quota, uh, the election law, sorry, the quota system, and then the, the corruption the blocs and alliances uh, formed along uh, sectarian and ethnic lines, and this is the main issue. And the Marjaya one, I mean, they would always say that we are we stand with the people, and uh, it's, but that's all. It's uh, all vague. There are no uh, clear stance. There is no clear stance or a detailed stance. And uh, uh, after each uh, speech, you would hear the politicians saying, uh, look, we support what the Marjaya says, and we uh, support the protesters' demands, and we support the rights, and we will all fight uh, corruptions, and hmm. they're stuck in the circle, and nothing uh, changed. You, you can't say it started to losing support, 
but you can say that it's a, a gradual decrease in its force hmm. among people. It kind of uh, takes time for these things, as you say. These are uh... yeah, it will take time, but now that it's it's controversial, and this was not happening before, hmm. so you could, you could not see people criticizing like openly and publicly the religious authority. This is something quite new. And of course, it will take much time to reach the point where you can say it's now losing uh, support. Again, another sign of how identity politics is not the only, the the predominant uh, dynamics in Iraq anymore. Let's talk about the local power dynamics in Basra and the South. The paramilitary forces loyal to different parties, as well as armed tribal forces that you mentioned earlier, seem to control the second largest city, Basra. Can you briefly explain who these people are? What is the way they actually exercise power? Well, on the one hand, you have local uh, provisional council of the province, and it's present in every uh, other uh, Iraqi city. But there is also different uh, Shia parties, especially Dawa, Badr, Fadila, and Hikmah. And uh, every one of them has um, their own armed group or militia. On the other hand, there are the tribes, and the tribes are powerful now. They have money, they have uh, weapons. One of the, the most powerful tribes in Basra uh, is Al-Battat. And because, especially since 2014, and because of the fight against ISIS, and because you know the security forces were busy fighting ISIS, this created a vacuum in the south, especially in Basra, which has been fulfilled by those militias and the tribes. And uh, there is like a power struggle between them to control the resources and to benefit as much as they can from uh, the resources of the city itself. I mean, even going back to uh, 2006 and seven, mm-hmm. there were tensions within the city and there were armed confrontations between different militia groups in Basra. And what you're saying is there's still some of that, plus the fact that there are tribal forces involved too, so there's confrontation between different tribes as well as between different militias and the tribes. Yes, uh, because, yeah, I think it has gone beyond control, really, because they are really uh, empowered uh, now. And there is another thing, to be honest with you, because I think the parties also contributed to empower the tribes. So if you also look back at the electoral campaigns before May election, you would see that all the political parties would go to the tribes to try to buy votes for for themselves and for their parties. And of course, there are certain bargains, compromises between the two. So they benefit from each other. And because there is no independent judiciary system and because the rule of law is really weak, so this has given rise to, to the tribes to take uh, control and to have uh, more power in the south. And not just in the south, it's also in Baghdad. A couple of weeks ago, there was an incident in one of the neighborhoods in Baghdad where uh, a tribe was trying to um, seek revenge for uh, the killing of one of its members. So there was a family who were killed, I think. And the tribe uh, went to the accused person's house and they start to fire it with arms. And this happened in the broad daylight. And the, the state didn't do anything about it. There is an Arabic and Iraqi term for this. They call it al dagga So mm. when they have, the tribe has its own um, system of seeking justice. So they go by themselves and they try to fire at the accused person's house just to frighten them and to, to tell them that we will seek revenge for our victims. And mm. this is very dangerous, really, because this is the capital. That's why it's spread. And it's not just about the South. It's not just about Basra. There is this argument that, I mean, you kind of alluded to it in your uh, talking about the tribes and militias in the South, that some of this is caused by the phenomenon of weak state. This happened under Saddam Hussein's regime during the sanctions as well. And he had to Mm. empower other tribes in other areas as a base of support. In return, he allowed them to do things such as having their own courts. And instead of 
a civil law, you were dealing with some of these tribal uh, laws and tribal rules. Yeah. So that seems to be a concession by the state sometimes. There's horse trading between these politicians and the tribal groups. I think it's very normal. I think it's everywhere when you have like a weak law, this will uh, give the place to tribes to control. Is it true that when a petroleum company wants to drill for oil in an area in the south, it would have to make payment to the tribes that have claims over those areas? The payment has been described as protection money, basically. Yeah, there were claims. There have been claims of tribes imposing taxes on the oil companies and also uh, getting millions of uh, money. So the money ranged between 25 million to 100 million dollar because they think that this is the area their area and from what i uh, read from the uh, official statements and media reports about this it started because you know the government tried to reach a concession a compromise with the tribes when uh, the oil company started first to to come to basra Uh, so they promised them compensation just to allow those oil companies to work in places or in areas under the control of certain tribes. But then there is a backlash because the tribes started to ask money from the oil companies. And yeah, there were uh, reports that uh, some tribes, some of the powerful tribes, including El Batata tribe, getting millions of monies from oil fields companies. So there, there were claims, yes. There are certain reports talking about this. It sounds like if they don't pay threat is that your facilities will not be safe. They could be attacked. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why uh, some people also blame the companies because they see them as collaborating with the, the tribes and with the corrupt officials. Yeah, Talk about the old companies which operate in southern Iraq and their practices. There seems to be a quite a bit of resentment towards mm-hmm. these companies. From what I'm hearing from the protesters, so the, the number one resentment is because of the, the the foreign labor, because they believe that the government should have, when they contracted with, with those companies, they should have requested that there is a certain percentage goes for the locals. But this didn't happen. And others say they actually, the, the government asked them to hire local people but they didn't abide by that, and they brought their nationals to work instead of local people. So there are, two again, two different uh, narratives. And also there was some people blame the companies for, again, collaborating with the corrupt officials, with the tribes, because when they pay and when they make those concessions, they are contributing to empowering the corrupt leaders, the officials, and also the tribes. Oil is a major factor in the dispute between the Basra province and its its local officials and its population, on the one hand, and the central Mm -hmm. government in Iraq. Basra oil fields produce roughly 3.8 million barrels per day. And Mm -hmm. this is about, if I'm not mistaken, that's about 85% of uh, entire oil production in Iraq. The Basra province generates something like 65% of the GDP, gross domestic product in Iraq, while the employment benefits they get from it is very little. Basra is supposed to receive $5 for every barrel of crude oil Mm -hmm. uh, that is sold by the central government, $5 for every barrel of refined oil. It is also Mm -hmm. supposed to get half of the border fees from ports and land crossings. Basra is a port city, and also Basra province has the only access to the sea. The Basra province argues that the central government has not paid its promised share of the revenues. Hence, there is a tension. Well, again, this is controversial because, uh, yes, there are some uh, petrodollars that the government has promised, but these allocations, these petrodollars uh, allocations have been frozen because of uh, the, the deficit, basically, in the state's budget. But again, this is not the central issue because it's all about corruption. I mean, in 2017, the previous uh, governor of Basra, Majid al-Nasrawi, he was accused for um, corrupt bargains and contracts uh, by the uh, uh, higher commission of integrity. But he could manage to escape because he has uh, double nationalities and uh, he escaped to Australia via Iran. And he's the governor. What I want to say that, yes, it's true that those petrodollars allocations are frozen, but even if they are released, there is no guarantee 
that Basra's problems will be resolved because those in power are the same, I mean, members of the same political parties people are protesting against. It's not just in, in Basra. Again, each province has its basic budget allocations, you know, to pay for the uh, employees' uh, salaries, etc. And uh, But again, where is the money is going? Because if you look at Basra, you can only see garbage everywhere. There are no projects. There is no infrastructure. Uh, local politicians are really linked and tied up to, to Baghdad's governments and politicians. Basra in 1960s and 70s was a thriving city. Indeed, you know, and it is considered the Venice of the Middle East. In Iraq, we call it Al-Fayha, which means a spacious place, because we are in the context, I mean, of the protests and the basic demands. But Basra is one of the great cities in history and its culture. And it's, it's not just about economy and oil. And it's really a shame that Basra is like that in 2018. I was looking at contrast between a couple of photographs of the, almost the same location next to the river banks. And I was looking at a photograph from back in the 50s versus one from 2018. As you said, it, the whole place is littered, polluted. I, I, you would feel this uh, contradiction if you look at pictures of all Iraqi cities in yeah. that period of time in the 70s or the 60s and now. But especially in the case of Basra, you know, it's not uh, only about the post-2003, but also before that, the, the war with Iran and the sanctions. All cities have suffered greatly and then situation has only gotten worse and worse in post-2003. Basra is a place for, uh, you know, the um, uh, leading uh, Arab linguists, uh, grammar schools, yes. you know, of Al-Farahidi and yeah, so it, what I want to say, it has a really cultural significance, yeah, be beyond just the economy and oil and all uh, other uh, economic resources that it enjoys. Since we are talking about Basra, on July 24th, the head of Basra Provincial Council announced that yeah. 15 out of the 25 members of the local government had signed a petition to establish an independent region of Basra. Yeah. What can you tell us about this announcement? Does this request reflect the general sentiments of the population in the province? The protesters seem to be disillusions with the entire political structure. On the mm -hmm. other hand, there is this issue of uh, local versus central government. I think it's a diversion from the protests' main demands, and especially to cover for the corruption and failures of the local uh, government in Basra. But at the same time, they brought it to the discussion because they know they would appeal to some people in Basra who are aspire for um, an autonomous region, just like Kurdistan in the north. But this is, again, it's not one of the demands currently raised by the protesters. It's not about that. The local province, they did so, they re did request that in 2015, but they couldn't um, achieve anything because they were faced with disapproval by the federal government and uh, there were uh, lots of obstacles. Because, you know, there is a legal process. This is something that cannot happen uh, overnight. And they know and they quite realize that. It's just a, a means of uh, deceiving the population and uh, trying to absorb uh, their, their anger and also diverting the protest from uh, its demands. And maybe because the protests lack leadership and this is where some actors are trying to fulfill this gap. And this could be one attempt by the Provisional Council in Basra to bring this issue now. When I was reading about Iraq, there's mm -hmm. this issue of poverty and employment that has created a fertile ground for a thriving drug trade involving crystal meth mm -hmm. in Basra. Mm -hmm. That's a fairly recent phenomenon. The drug evidently still comes from Iran, and it mm -hmm. would go to other countries from there. But now much of the drug stays in Basra, evidently, mm -hmm. and there are reports that the drug trade involves Shia militias and tribesmen yeah. in that region yeah. and, and some of the prominent officials who are colluding with drug smugglers. There are even reports that meth labs have been set up to produce the drug in Basra itself. How widespread is this problem of uh, addiction in uh, Basra? It's a fairly recent phenomenon, isn't it? It is, and this is a very a very good point to raise indeed, because it's a very serious and problematic issue that has not been addressed by the government or even by uh, other sectors in Iraq, like media, 
it's not just like being a, a crossing point for um, the distribution or the smuggling of, of drugs. Uh, for example, I've been reading some reports about farming certain plants, and it's not just in Basra. And this is what's very concerning. It's really widespread across the country, in cities in the south, in Baghdad itself, and also up to Diyala and in other uh, cities. No one is shedding enough light on it. The number of addicts is on the rise. The number of people who are arrested is increasing daily. And there are lots of really key dimensions here at play. The social, the um, cultural, and the political, because as you said, the tribes, the powerful militias are involved trying to exploit this because this is another source that they can benefit from. And also because of the unemployment and poverty had led the young to take this route. And there is Iraq lacks uh, rehabilitation centers. It lacks uh, the necessary means, I mean, to treat those people. It's really problematic. And I think it's worth a coverage or uh, another episode on its own to highlight the different dimension. Is it mainly crystal meth? There is a number of other drugs. But I think uh, the crystal meth is the most widely used. Going back to the protests, some protesters torched the buildings used by Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi's Dawa Party, mm-hmm. the Supreme yeah. Islamic Council Party, as well as the Iranian-backed militias, such as al-Badr organization, mm-hmm. Asaib al-Haq mm-hmm. and Katab al-Hezbollah, yeah. who also received uh, their fair share of public anger in these protests. These are militias who have been forced to reckon with in the fight against Daesh. Nevertheless, the objects of these actions, so the protesters are taking quite bold steps in terms of articulating their demands and expressing their outrage. Yeah, I think this is, was an unprecedented action. And it happened, you know, after a protester was killed by the security forces in Basra. This is when things escalated and when the protests spread across the southern cities. And we saw the protesters uh, targeting and approaching, surrounding not just the provisional buildings, but also, as you mentioned, the headquarters and also the offices of leading Shia parties and their uh, militias, which again is expressive of the anger of the public and the disillusionment uh, with those parties. And it was not just the uh, offices of political parties, but also in Najaf, there was a very important thing that happened when people stormed the Najaf International Airport. And they, they stormed it not to, for the sake of vandalism or sabotage, as they were accused by political leaders. No, uh, on the contrary. They, tug, they stormed the building because the Najaf International Airport has been controlled and run by Shia Islamic parties. And uh, they are, again, uh, accused of financial corruption. Because of this, they forced, I mean, they later forced uh, PM Haider al-Abadi to um, dismantle the uh, board of directors of the international airports and bringing it back to the federal government's administration. This was something that the protester was really credited for. In terms, I mean, of the political parties, which were involved in the fight against ISIS, people do realize, because as I said, uh, many of the volunteers, the majority of volunteers actually, who joined the security forces or the parliamentary, uh, the PMUs, come from uh, the South. So they differentiate, they see them as political parties involved in the political protests. They differentiate between them and the fighters who just went to fight and many of whom lost their lives. And this is interesting because people started to realize that this is not a single, the parliamentary uh, units is not a single homogenous group, but there are various groups and many of whom are involved in the government, are political parties, and they are backed by Iran. And that's why they express their anger, because the protesters are against all the political parties. There was one protester, for example, who said that his son is in Hashid, is in Hashid al-Shabi, and he didn't get any money. They don't know where the money goes, but they didn't receive any salary or nothing. And they are protesting. Hashid al-Shabi is the popular mobilization forces. Mobilization forces, yes. yes. So the protesters 
clearly, based on what you have been saying, are distanced from the institutional power and former mm-hmm. political parties. And given the absence of defined organization and clear leadership, how do you see the future of these protests? Well, I think their strength in the first place was because they were spontaneous. That's why they really posed a threat to all political parties. It's a kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time, not to have a leadership. Because without a leadership, the protest could be exploited, could be hijacked to different political parties or other actors. And I think three weeks after the protest started, we, we started to see this. I mean, the involvement of the tribes and the protests and the committees, the coordination, they call them or coordination committees in every province. They are drafting list of demands which are really unrealistic and they cannot be implemented at all. And they are drifting, I mean, the protests to a different uh, direction. On the other hand, there were the oppressive measures taken by the government. So I think they could be undermined, weakened, but they would definitely take place again. They would definitely recur. And I think this could be not just in, in certain provinces in the south or in Baghdad, but also it will spread across the country because... Again, the infrastructure, the base upon which Iraqi state is built is the same. And if this is not going to change, so all of those problems, this circle of disservice and disillusionment will continue. And the anger, you know, will explode at any point, sooner or later. Momina producer Shahram Agamir spoke with Belsam Mustafa, who's a PhD researcher in modern languages and politics at the University of Birmingham. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish passed away on August 9, 2008, following complications after a major surgery in Houston, Texas. He was 67. Here is Sinan Antoun speaking about Mahmoud Darwish and his legacy. He started writing poetry at a very early age. He learned to read and write on his grandfather's lap and then, of course, went to school it is said that on the you know the celebration of Israel's Independence Day, which for the Palestinians is the Nakba, um, he wrote a poem and recited it. But the poem was antithetical to the general atmosphere because it talked about a little boy 
who had lost his house and whose family had lost their farming land and everything. And he was summoned by the Israeli officer the next day and threatened and told that his father would lose his work permit. And Mahmoud Darwish said that at that day and on that day and at that very young age, he realized the power of words and he realized that this was not just a game, but a very powerful game and continued to write poetry and became also politically active. The important thing to remember is the first decade or so, the Palestinians inside Israel were living under military rule and they didn't have a freedom of movement. It was constrained. So they lived under military rule and it's important to remember that he had lost his house and his family had lost everything when he was still six years old. And when they were forced to leave their village, you know, in the chaos of the exodus, he was lost for a few hours and his mother had to look for him in the dark. But also he was marked as a refugee having gone to Lebanon, you know, he was called a refugee by others. And even after coming back, they returned to another village, not to their old one, which was completely decimated. So they lived as internal exiles, and he did so from a very early age. And then he became uh, politically active in the Israeli Communist Party, which was back then the only party in Israel that allowed Arabs uh, to work. And he began to publish and became quite famous. So by the time he left Israel in 1971 on a scholarship to Moscow. He was already famous inside Palestine and in the Arab world. And it's important to remember and emphasize that he was imprisoned three times because of his poetry, not because of any act of violence. He was imprisoned three times. He was put under house arrest uh, for a long time and he was banned from leaving Haifa where he lived as a young man for almost five years. So in 1971, when he was in Moscow, he decided not to go back and went to Cairo for a year and then to Beirut and then to various exiles. There are always notions of exile and identity. They're very, very evident and explicit in Mahmoud Darwish's poetry. Well, it's evolved from the initial simple uh, universal gesture of, you know, I exist, I am who I am, I want you to recognize me exemplified in his poem, Write Down, I'm an Arab. He evolved into starting to celebrate, if the term is correct, uh, eternal exile, knowing that perhaps he could never ever go back uh, in his lifetime, at least like many of the Palestinian refugees. He started to celebrate uh, eternal exile, but also the notion of home change, since home for him was destroyed and forever lost. Home became his language and his poetry, because at a certain point, the idea of the homeland was being threatened with erasure, so he kind of mythologized it. But afterwards, and that's where his genius shines, I think, once he realized that he made a monument out of this lost homeland, and he himself had become such a myth, a mythical figure with huge symbolic capital, he started to demythologize it especially in his later poetry, to celebrate an eternal journey and to say that the road, as he says in his own poetry, the road to, to home is more beautiful than the home itself. Now, it's important to understand that that doesn't mean that home is not important, but for people like him, for whom the West Bank and Gaza are not really their home. He is from the Galilee, and that's where he grew up, and that's where he belongs. As he said, going back to Ramallah, to live in Ramallah is still a kind of exile for him because that is not his home. And that is the tragic uh, aspect of his life and even of his death, is that even in death he was not allowed to go back and be buried close to his family. And it's important to remember that he was not allowed to return to Palestine or Israel all those years. And every time he returned which is only a few times, wants to, attend the, wants to attend the funeral of the famous Palestinian novelist Emil Habibi, and the other time last year, it was with a special permit from the Israeli authorities because he was banned from returning to his country. Mahmoud Darwish has been called many things, national poets of Palestine, um, the voice of Palestinian people, the poet laureate of Palestine, 
And in a 2002 interview, he said that being the iconic voice of Palestine is a burden to him. Well, because there were pressures placed on him, consciously and unconsciously. People expected him always to write the kind of poetry that they wanted to hear. So we, we spoke of, write down, I'm an Arab. So whenever he went to a poetry recital, people always wanted the old Mahmoud Darwish, but he wanted to be a poet who always developed. While he, of course, wanted to write about the suffering of his people, but he also wanted to write about the suffering of individuals and about himself. So he did not have the freedom that other poets have because... He wrote a whole collection about love and erotic themes. Some people got upset and said, how can the national poet write about love? But it's amazing how he navigated all of that and how with every new collection he wrote in a different style. And with time, he forced his audience and the readers to develop with him and to be always ready and open to his new experimentations and to understand that while at a certain point it was important to preserve Palestine in memory and in reality, but perhaps it's also important to move on and to celebrate the Palestinian as an individual and a normal human being. A Palestinian doesn't have to be always the hero. He or she should also be the fragile, normal human being. And while one should celebrate one's uh, triumphs and one's resilience, one should also celebrate one's weaker points. And it's important that he also calls himself, when he was asked, how do you see yourself? He said, I see myself as a Trojan poet, meaning history has given us Homer and the discourse of the, the victors. He says that I want to search for the voice of the Trojans, the voice that was lost. And he also celebrated simple life. And it's important to remember that one of his fam most famous lines, which says, you know, we love life when, when we have time to do so. Meaning the stereotypical image of the Palestinians as loving death. This is how he countered it by saying that we actually love life. And even though he was against Oslo, but he returned to Ramallah to live as a citizen. And he said that the next challenge for Palestinians was now that perhaps, or it seems that this one major confrontation or battle has changed. It's, it's important now for us to write about simple and normal things. We don't always have to write about heroic themes and, and major epics. As he changed his poetry, did people's relationship to his poetry changed, or it always remained the same? Well, he was asked once, you know, do, do you think you still have your old admirers? And his answer was beautiful in that he said, it's like a train where some people get off the train. You know, there was there were some people who st and still are who only like his older poetry and don't like his newer poetry as much. But then he says that new people got on the bus. So his poetry always had a massive impact. Uh, not only on the street, but also on the literary establishment, on the critics. There are very few poets who manage to be so popular with the average people, but also be successful with the critics. It's mentioned time and again, but it's important. Mahmoud Darwish could get thousands and thousands of people to show up to his poetry recitals. A number of times he recited poetry in sports stadiums, and they were full. And wherever he goes, it's always full and it's always sold out. And his poems were put to music by Marcel Khalifa and became very, very famous. But it's also, it's the poetry for daily survivor. There are many, many stories of people who were in prison and were being tortured. I read this just two days ago. And one of them used to recite Darwish's poetry to himself to stay strong. But also his beautiful love poetry. A lot of young, young men would use his love poetry with their lovers and with their girlfriends. And another important aspect is that people used to carry his photographs, pictures of him in political demonstrations. It's a very well-known story that one of the Palestinians who was getting beat up by an Israeli soldier was asked, who is this in the picture about Mahmoud Darwish? And he said, it's my uncle. But later they discovered that it was Mahmoud Darwish and then they banned Palestinians from carrying Mahmoud Darwish's photographs in demonstrations. So that, that tells you something. And his contribution to Arabic poetry, modern Arabic poetry, is immense. I mean, with modern Arabic poetry, we had a move towards prose poetry and, and most poets have abandoned writing with, with meter and rhyme. Mahmoud Darwish, because of his mastery of the tradition, 
is able to keep writing in the traditional form with meters and rhymes, yet he had so mastered these meters that when you read his poetry, you, you see how it's musical, but it's closer to the conversational style. But another important thing is his diction. Uh, his diction is very rich in the kind of words and also in the kind of images that he uses. So he's really enriched the language with the kinds of words that he uses and also with the metaphors. I always like Heidegger's words that language is, is dead metaphors. You know, all of these words that we take literally started out as metaphors, but then they died. And then poetry comes and gives new verve to the language. And this is what he has done throughout his poetry, and especially in the later years, really complex and beautiful metaphors in very simple, almost conversational language. That was Professor Sinan Antoun speaking with Malihi about the late Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. Next, we hear Professor Antoun reading some of Mahmoud Darwish's poetry, which he translated from the original Arabic, as well as poems from a book entitled Unfortunately, It Was Paradise. Sinan Antoun's co-translation of Unfortunately, It Was Paradise was nominated for the Pan Prize for Translation in 2004. Think of others. As you prepare your breakfast, think of others. Do not forget what doves eat. As you wage your wars, think of others. Do not forget those who seek peace. As you pay the water bill, think of others, those who are breastfed by clouds. As you return home, your home, think of others. Do not forget those who live in tents. As you sleep and count the stars, think of others. There are those who cannot find space to sleep. As you free yourself with metaphors, think of others, those who lost their right to speak. As you think of distant others, think of yourself and say, I wish I were a candle in the dark. I thought that I had died on Saturday. So I said, I must stipulate something in my will. I did not find anything. I said, I have to invite a friend to tell him that I am dead. But I did not find anyone. I said, I must go to my grave to fill it. But I did not find the way and my grave remained empty. I said, I must do what I must. Write the last line on shades, but the water spilled onto the letters. I said I must do something here and now, but I did not find an act worthy of a dead man. I screamed, this death has no meaning, absurdity and chaos in the senses. I will not believe that I have died a full death. Perhaps I am somewhere in between. Perhaps I am a retired dead man spending his short vacation in life. Mercy Bullet I am jealous of the horse when its leg is broken and it feels the insult of its inability to attack and retreat in the wind, they treat it with the mercy bullet. As for me, if something is broken in me, physical or moral, 
I ask that a professional killer be found. Even if he is one of my enemies, I will pay him his fees and the bullet's cost. I will kiss his hand and the gun. And if I can write, I will praise him with a precious poem. And he would choose the rhyme and the meter. With shyness, with shyness, I listen to an old song on a scratched record. With shyness, I smell the scent of a rose that is not mine. With shyness, I scratch a body part. With shyness, I use my five senses. With shyness, I succumb to my sixth sense. With shyness, I live as if I am the guest of a gypsy who is about to depart. In Jerusalem, I mean inside the old wall. I walk from one epoch to another, without a memory to correct me. There, prophets share the history of the sacred, they ascend to the heavens and return less crestfallen and less sad. Love and peace are sacred and coming to the city. I was walking over a slope and thinking, how can narrators disagree on the light's speech in a stone? Do wars break out because of a stone's dim light? I walk in my sleep, I gaze in my sleep. I see no one behind or before me. All this light is for me. I walk, run, fly, and become someone else in the manifestation. Words bloom like grass from Isaiah's prophetic mouth. You will not be safe unless you believe. I walk as if I am someone else. My wound is a white evangelical flower. My hands two doves on the cross, flying and carrying the earth. I don't walk. I fly and become someone else. There is no place and no time. Who am I? I am not I in the presence of the ascent. But I think only the prophet spoke classical Arabic. What else? What else? A female soldier shouts suddenly. It is you again. Didn't I kill you? I said, you killed me. And like you, I forgot to die. There is no city in the city, no here except there, and no there except here. That was Sinan Antun reading the poem, I Belong There, from Unfortunately It Was Paradise, selected poems of Mahmoud Darwish. Sinan Antun's co-translation of Unfortunately It Was Paradise was nominated for the Penn Prize for translation in 2004. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-848. 6767 extension 632 email vomekpfa at yahoo.com connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa <laughs>